All right, here we go. It is Doc Talk time with Dr. Jenna Burton. She's ready to go. We've moved rooms once. We've reconnected twice. I think we've got volume. We're back on Zoom this week. <laughs> We're talking aging. And and I don't know if you've picked this topic because I'm hitting 55 and you're concerned that I'm starting to think a lot about age. And I've got a whole bunch to share about you because I'm obsessed, actually, with old age. And I and truly want to go and get one of those old age things done where they do all the makeup and show you what you're going to look like when you're 80. So I want to, I want to see it. So I think that's why you chose this topic. And as I was looking through our list, we started putting together a list and then you put into our WhatsApp thing. You said, Hey, there are so many things to mention. We can talk skin. We can talk bones. We can talk hearts. We can talk diabetes, lack of independence, midlife crisis, reduced appetite, need for weight training, sleeping less, predisposition to cancers, sodium, low sodium, dementias, aging populations, and the list went on and on and on, Jenna. And I figure we've got at least three parts to this because where we we started off is really just looking very quickly and jumping through some, you know, the stages of aging and then chronological aging, biological aging, psychological aging. It's like, there, there we go. That's a dissertation right there on its own. James, did I miss your birthday this week? Uh, no, it's next week. Oh, phew, phew. Okay. <laughs> August 3rd. August the 3rd. Right, inscribed in my mind. I was just thinking as you're going through that, all I could hear was, I'm turning 55, and I thought, oh my gosh, I forgot to sing happy birthday to you. 55, can you, I can't, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really excited. 55 is a great year, but I, I remember when I moved here, and that's 20 years ago, so we're talking 35, and 55 was a long way away. So I'm looking at this going, it's amazing how quickly things just fire by. But I also remember when we start talking aging, there's, there's all this, these things that go on with aging. Denial is a big one. And as our bodies change, it's subtle. Like over 20 years, there's, you know, I, I, just from running or swimming or stamina with walking around or sleep, etc., it's amazing how things change over, you know, very subtly over time until you realize, huh, I can't do that, or huh, I don't look the same, or huh. And it's, there's a whole bunch of denial in there as well. It's, it's very odd. And some people cope with that a little bit better than others. I'm just going to interject and tell you that this is not going to be our longest podcast in the world because we've had a whole catalog of errors before we even got talking and now my charge has decided that it wants me to sit here with my arm outstretched to push it into the wall in order to work. So we're about two seconds in and uh, my right arm is already feeling a little bit fatigued. But we'll, we'll go with it. I'm holding it. It'll keep me, my arm, keep my arm feeling young anyway. Maybe you have to, um, maybe you have to move to a different socket. No, it's, it's the charge along the whole computer, computer's age as well. Uh, and I really, I'm, I'm, I'm due for a new one, but I've been putting it off. But yeah, we're talking about we're talking about denial and, and and getting older, and it's so true. I meet children uh, out of school, like eighteen year olds, and I feel like I'm leveling with them because obviously I'm so close in age to them as opposed to their parents, mm. and, and it's not true. And then sometimes I will make a reference. I think I told you about making a reference to a band. I'm trying to think who it was, the one that sang Umbop. Oh yeah, Umbop. Ba-ba-da-oom-bop. Yeah. Uh, who was that band? Yeah, that's one of those. Isn't that one of the boy bands? Oh, yeah, that's it. Yes, that's right. They were like the first group of guys to have to like really make long hair cool for, for like young teens. And I remember referencing, like, can you believe that Hanson are like 15 years old or something this year? And he was like, who Hanson? <laughs> and and it's, it's just small reminder that like that that make you realize that you've got older, but you've just not realized in your mind you still feel eighteen. Yeah, and that is supported by my grandma. She always says the same. I can imagine, you know, and that, that becomes a real challenge, doesn't it? Because you start, you start thinking, well, hold on, I'm not that old. I mean, I get it all the time as well. People will say, oh, we're going to listen to some oldies from the '80s, and I'm going, oldies from the '80s? What are you talking about? That's not old music, but. If you're 18 today, listening to stuff from the 80s is like it's way back. That's way back land. I wasn't even born. But it's like my mum used to play music and I'd be like, mum, get this rubbish off. Like, what, what is this? And let's get the 90s bands on who were, you know, my era. Yeah. 
And, and now today, I still dismiss any music apart from the 90s. There is stuff that I like, of course. But to me, my favorite thing on a Saturday morning when I'm chilling out is to put on some 90s classics. It's like, yeah, just don't make music like that anymore. And, and that's it. I'm reiterating the words that my mum used to speak and not really recognizing that she was about my age when she said it. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? And, that, and that's where we get chronological, as you said, when you, when you put together this list, chronological aging, biological aging, and psychological aging, and they all sort of intertwine together, creating a rather interesting scenario for us as we try to, you know, sort of put it all together and figure out, okay, what's going on and what do I need to be thinking about? And, and it's funny because in, you know, in, in a, sort of back, I wouldn't say, you know, maybe an unintentional way. We we talk a lot about aging. And I, I remember maybe three podcasts, four podcasts ago when you were talking about your knees and your chronic foot pain. And I said, and I remember saying to you, so what's your plan? And the plan being, as you look at the biological aging that's going to take place, and as we start talking about joints and all these kind of things that happen and, you know, what, what's your plan for this chronic pain that you have, which inevitably is only going to get worse. And I remember you distinctly saying, I don't have a plan. I'm not really thinking about it, which kind of put it in the psychological age category because psychologically you're going, that's, that's so far away. It's not an issue. Well, this is actually, this actually lies a deeper rooted issue, James, uh-huh. to be honest. There was a talk I gave, we all had to give in part of our masters, we all had to give a talk on a health topic, whatever it was, it was a healthcare communications module. And the one that I decided to talk about was almost like a PTSD in in healthcare workers. And I mentioned that I don't, this is terrible, I, I don't have a pension. And I, I it's because I've seen so many people fall and assume that they are going to live this long age and what will I do when I'm in my 70s uh, this is how I'm going to have my hair when I'm older etc etc and the reality is is that old age is not guaranteed you're lucky if you get to old age of course biological pro- processes slow down things change however and of course our population is generally as a whole aging so the assumption is that we will get older but people die young and I think I have this in my head as to how how is it possible that I could make old age when so many things can go wrong along the way? Yeah. Life is so fragile. I, I've, I've met people that have walked out into the road, they've slipped, they've fallen, hit their head, had a huge bleed, and they've not made it. So I, I think I've seen so many things that I think old age is a real blessing, and I'd love to think I get there. But I can't say when I'm older. I can't say when my children are older. I always say, and I, you know, I hope when the boys are older or if everything goes okay and the boys are older and I get to be there, um, we shouldn't take it for granted. Yeah. So if you're thinking old age, when you think, you know, aging and, and when you, the term we often use is old age, what is old age to you? What, do, what age do you cl- click in and say, well, that's old? In theory, old age is from 65 years. Really? However, yeah, however, that it, it's very difficult to say that because... Yeah. In the, our geriatric wards in the UK, we will often take people from old age in their 50s, believe it or not, James. Really? And the truth of the matter is, is that everyone is older at a different time. So chronologically, this is your age. So that's what we mean by chronological aging. is just, It's just that time has passed and you have lived 55 years or you've lived 60 years, 70, however. But your biological process of aging is very different. Mm. And some people can be in their 70s still working still working out, still going on holidays. And yet you have a 70-year-old that is on oxygen, not able to walk up a steep incline without getting short of breath. You know, everyone is very, very different. So in terms of what do we think medically, we assess it on a case-by-case basis, but you tend to take the over 55s as the point that you start to check more for things like cancers, start to check more for things such as blood pressure, such as heart disease, et cetera. But really when you reach 65, that's when things can tend to escalate a little bit. The the whole biological aging is 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 kind of an interesting area and quite an industry in that 
people are constantly looking for those things. You know, oh, if I take Cinequin tablets, that's going to help my joints. If I take these whatever tablets, that's going to help my brain. If I take this, we're, we're constantly seeking internal things to help us slow down the aging process. And then, of course, there's the myriad of cosmetic creams that are, you know, anti-aging this and anti-aging that. And, you know, can we really slow down that biological aging, do you think? There's such a huge industry in and research in, the, in maybe the last 10 years or so, especially, at really trying to look at how does the process of aging occur and how can, how can effectively we stop it or slow it down. And yes, of course, there are definitely ways that you can slow down aging. And that is generally about taking care of yourself. So how can I increase the elasticity in my skin? Well, now we know that if we stimulate the elastic, that basically the, the fibers that create the elastin in the skin, and we stimulate that by causing small amounts of inflammation around the skin, actually your skin process speeds up and can be reversed maybe five, 10 years to make people's skin look a little bit healthier. Uh, it's not an easy process and it's not something that is cheap. Often people charge a lot of money in order for these things to occur. And again, in the body, we know now that the, a reduction in free radicals helps to reduce the amount that we age. And free radicals are things that are produced by toxins from alcohol, from smoking, from effectively living an unhealthy lifestyle. Mm. And we know that things like exercise help to in, improve that. But there's also genetic predispositions. We all know that you know, if parents have had cancers from young age, that it's more likely that we will get them as well. So it's also about going to the doctors and, you know, getting these things checked out and, and trying to eradicate them early. It doesn't stop the process happening, but it, at least it allows people to live a longer age. When, when, when you think back to your studies as, uh, as an internist and, and, and through, how much time do you spend studying the aging process and and how to consult and deal with all of these aging things is that is that a big part of your medical studies i'd say about 90 percent of the time james really <laughs> and well i i trained in the uk and so we have a really large population that are older so majority of patients that walk in unless you're studying pediatrics i'd say majority of your patients are elderly and what was interesting is when I came to Dubai, is that totally changed? And suddenly we had all the, we had a lot of people that were the worried well, so people that were actually quite well, but had high health anxiety or they were yeah. suffering with anxiety or depression. But, but physically they were, they were very well. We got more pediatric cases that came in. And again, because parents are more well-educated and now they, they want to go and get tested for things or I'm worried my child might have X, Y, and Z. Can you just check if everything's okay? Mm. Whereas the hospitals in the UK, you do get, you know, a, a lot more more medical emergencies, I suppose, of people that genuinely are exceptionally ill. Doesn't mean that the people coming in to check if everything is okay is wrong. I really believe in that. That is preventative medicine and really important, something that we all push today so that we're not having to treat after something happens, but we're actually helping educate people along the way as to how they can stay healthy and that these things don't occur and things don't go wrong. But my experience of the hospital has always been most elderly care. So we get, um, if you get put onto a medical shift or a medical take in A&E or in medicine, majority of people that you see are definitely over the age of 50, more so over the age of 60. Wow. And people are coming with the same recurrent things, lower, uh, lower respiratory pneumonias because they smoke regularly, heart attacks, strokes, low sodium falls, um, confused query calls. These are the things that I would say make up the bulk of, of a day, a typical day in England. Wow, that's that's impressive. I mean, that's I I really wouldn't have thought that that much of your time would have been spent in this area, which makes it even more important because I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking about this. Yet the medical community obviously is seeing it and and dealing with it, which makes you wonder in some ways how equipped our society is for an aging population? There's so many things to consider with an aging population. We, we've touched on their medical resource. The older people are, the more you're going to have to deal with health problems because no matter what way you look at it, how much you slow down aging, there is a time when things start to go wrong 
And that is just because our bodies age. Machinery gets older. I mentioned my laptop is really old and things aren't working as well as they used to. That is inevitable. As time goes on, things stop working quite as well. And we can slow it down, reverse it, etc. But it just happens. The other is also that you have a reduced working population. So the percentage of people that are working is less effectively compared to the ratio of people that are now retired and not working. So you actually have, in theory, less injection of cash into the system because you've got all these elderly people that you need to look after. It's not just medical bills. You've got care homes. A lot of people need carers. A lot of people need to be in care homes, not just, and that ranges from nursing homes to sheltered accommodation to accommodation where there's just nurses on site. Also, sometimes these people can't provide their own meals themselves, so then it's about providing resources to allow them to eat properly, to get effective heating. So it becomes an exceptionally burdensome situation on the community, really, as a whole. Not saying that the alternative is any better, but it's something that we need to consider and we need to prepare for. It's it's quite a challenge actually. As I was looking through again, we you know we talked about chronological aging, and that's just our physical age, the biological aging, and and it's interesting. You we we see people who look really who we know are very young, but they look and act really old with the psychological and biological aging. I mean, everyone knows somebody who's and and the reverse, right? We all know someone who's who's in their eighties or so and acts like they're in their fifties. And we know someone who's in their 70s who acts like they're 90 and they might even look 90. I sometimes think the the biological the psychological aging and biological aging play off each other. And it's it's such a crazy thing. It's so true, but your mind talks before about how much our minds have such an impact into our physiological well-being. Mm. So if you think something, if you strongly obsess about it then you are more likely to have that finger care. So if you think, I'm so definitely going to get heart disease, there has been research that shows the more you think about something, the more that your body can actually start to engage in those processes. And it's even something when footballers are trying to get themselves better, they're actually told to start visualizing about how they're going to get back onto the pitch and they'll be kicking the ball and they'll be running in a certain way. And it's also something that we use When we're doing our weights, if you think about using certain muscles, your body does tend to engage them. Mm. So if we really obsess about getting older, the chances are we'll start to act older, we'll start to behave in slightly different ways, and maybe we will start to get a little bit older a bit sooner. I I find there's also this, this huge issue when we talk about psychological aging. It's as things start to fail, our ears start to fail, our eyes start to fail, our joints start to fail. So maybe you need a hearing aid, maybe you need better glasses, maybe you need a cane or a walker or something. And in that psychological area, I've met so many people in their 70s who need support when they walk, but they won't do it. They just say, no, no, only old people do that. And, you know, while biologically I might be 75, psychologically I'm 55 and 55 year olds don't use a walker. And, and I'm always amazed. And I always, I always say to my wife, when I get to the point where I need a walker, I will be using a walker. I'll have a horn on it. I'm going to have my boom box on it. I'm going to have everything on that thing, a barbecue. It's going to be the walker of all walkers. But, you know, I've met so many people who won't do it. They just won't do it. They said, no, no, no. Only old people use walkers. It's like, I just shake my head. But it's a challenge, isn't it? Because for some people, they feel as if once they give into that, that's it. They feel like it's a downward spiral. And I've seen that a lot. Oh, really? It's like, I will not, I will not accept carers. Once I accept carers, I know that is the decline process. And they fight, and especially the much older generation, they fight for their independence. And there's something so great about that. However, there also becomes that point where they struggle so much that their life could be so much easier if they did give in and have that walk out, have those carers. And it's like, when do you recognize the line to really push them to say, look, your quality of life would be so much better if you gave in and you accepted that you need to have this walk. But at the same time, you don't want to take away that fighting spirit because that is also what helps keep them young and keep them really geared off and focused on trying to keep going as long as possible. 
I, I wonder if the, the COVID-19 phenomenon is going to help provoke some of that change that you're talking about with getting a caregiver in as opposed to going to uh, a home or an estate because suddenly, we've, as we've been reading in so much of the news, so because of the way old age homes are organized, there there's a lot of people in them. There can be people can be very close together. When I look at Canada, when I look at Quebec, the, the majority of cases of COVID-19 happened in these care facilities because of the way they're organized. Having someone stay at home, having a caregiver come in twice a day, maybe three times a day if need be, and and you staying in your own environment, that is a lot safer when we start talking about COVID situations. And I can only think others, I wonder if this will be the tipping point for people to say, hey, maybe this is an option. It depends really on the needs. So for some people, they prefer to be in their own home. And from a financial aspect from the government, it's cheaper for them to stay in their own home and have carers. However, there becomes a need where suddenly they can't have three times a daycare. They need 24 hours a daycare. Mm. And when it gets to that, there is no choice but to go into one of these facilities at the moment, unless you have somebody that is working around the clock and everyone needs to have a break you can't work 24 hours and therefore is it safe for, the, for them to be in a proper facility? So how it works in the UK is you'll have someone come out and assess your needs. You actually have someone that assesses, are you suitable for a care package twice a day, a care package three times a day, or are you someone that would be better in a 24-hour residential facility? But I don't disagree. I think the way that the facilities are working is going to have to change for sure. And I don't know if you know this, but, and I don't know how it works in Canada, but if you have been assessed in hospital and it's been decided that you are someone that is suitable for 24-hour care, you then have to wait in your bed in hospital until that bed becomes available in the care home, and that can be a long wait. So we have a huge percentage of elderly patients taking up beds in hospitals that don't require them, and a hospital bed is a really expensive thing to do. But say my grandma was in hospital waiting for a care home and then I took her home for the night. Her name goes off the waiting list. Really? She then place. Yeah, which I think is a really sad thing because they say, well, if you can take her for the night, you can take her forever. And so a lot of people then leave their, their elderly parents, grandparents, relatives in the hospital. And therefore they take up a hospital bed and there are people that desperately need those beds. It's a huge amount of cost. There just aren't enough care home beds available. Yeah. It, it, this is, I mean, when we start thinking about it, the, you know, the fact that we have this aging population is really a big challenge. And, and as, as you point out, we have, we really have five stages of aging from that independent level to the interdependence level, which I think that there's a fine line between the interdependence and the dependence level. And as you said, having someone come out and assess and, and people don't want to be defeated, then crisis management and then end of life. And I think those, those areas become the lines between them become interesting and the change of mindset becomes interesting. It's so difficult for people to watch, especially if mentally they are fine. Sometimes I'm torn. I don't know what is more cruel. Is it more cruel for somebody to go through dementia, for instance, and become a pleasantly confused? Not everyone with dementia becomes pleasantly confused, but a high population do become pleasantly confused. And they're unaware of what's happening. They're unaware that they're getting older. And that depends on the type of dementia. Some some patients with dementia have got more insight than others. But the vast majority, they don't know what's happening. And they're quite happy in their own little world. Traumatizing for their family. But for the person that's going through it, they can be quite ignorant to the, the biological processes that are occurring and that the fact that they're losing their dignity. Or is it kinder for someone to be mentally still there, so effectively still still with us in life, to watch their body declining mm. because the frustration that can be involved in not being able to simple things from an orthopedic point of view they can't open their jam jars they have to ask for help all the time they sometimes can't go to the toilet on their own they can't get dressed on their own and some people are so conscious of having other people help them for these minds, sorry, basic physiological functions of life that to them, they would rather not be here anyway. Mm. I mean, we're talking very far down the line of dependence. 
But I, I don't know. I often get really torn as to what what is a preferable way to reach old age. You know, and that that's a, that's the the million Durham question, isn't the million dollar question? Is is how do we deal with all this? And 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 as you said, there are there are as we get to the point where we have orthopedic issues, or we have movement issues, or we have varying stages of dementia. There are so many things we can do. But does the cost, how do we factor in the cost? How do we factor in the people costs that might be needed with the care and assistance and, and, and create, in a sense, a, a different mentality, a different thought process on how this all comes together, for both for us as people going through it and for those who are, are in the process themselves of aging. And it's, it's a big puzzle. It really, and, and so many people deal with it in different ways. You know, even if we backtrack, I remember when I had the boys, I suddenly started to feel really uncomfortable wearing like vest tops. And it was never something that ever crossed my mind before about wearing my vest top with a pair of shorts. What's and I a, suddenly thought, like, a vest top? What, what, are we, what are we talking? A vest top? It's sort of a, what's a vest top? Like the spring top, you okay. know, with the like spring. Yeah. You know, James, like showing your, like showing majority of your upper chest and your <laughs> arms maybe a little poke of the back in there and uh, wearing my short shorts. Now I would never have ever questioned that before having the boys. And then suddenly I had my children and I felt, am I supposed to start dressing differently now? Like do I, I felt like I ate about 10 years the night that literally the night that I had them. And <laughs> you do start to question at what point are you supposed to change? Yeah. My mom always was supposed to get your hair cut when you get older and I'm, I'm not there yet, but sometimes I do. If I've not had my Botox recently and I look in the mirror, I think, should I wear my hair in this? Oh, what do you mean Botox? Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You get, when do you get your Botox done? What are you talking about here? You're a Botox person. Where are you getting Botox done? Because I need it, James, and I like it. I might look, Where? I haven't had On it your forehead? Really. I, mean, I don't like much. I, I, me and my patients will know I'm a big, big, big enthusiast for natural natural tiny bits uh-huh. just because you paid so much doesn't mean you should get the most it should be about tiny bits okay. just like the cherry on top and i really believe in, in good skincare however even just at my stage i'm in my mid-30s i'm finding it weird and you've gone from this age where you're 19 20 you walk down the street and people you know they might turn around and give you like check you out whatever suddenly stops happening you have a child Little old ladies come and they go, oh, and they, you know, they give you a nice look. Men, they're not looking at you. Nobody's looking at you in, in sort of an attractive sense. And it's really weird. You become kind of invisible. You feel, suddenly feel like you've become from, you're on center stage. You're looking for your mate. You're all glammed up. You feel really thin, etc. And then you get to this point where actually you become a bit invisible in society and you're a lady as opposed to a girl. And, and you know, even that alone, and I know that's something that was, not challenging for me because I felt like I got the benefit of having children and, and that made everything worthwhile. But it is a shift. It's de- definitely a shift with your place in society. And I'm only in my mid thirties. I've got a whole way. <laughs> if I make it, I've got a whole way to go, you know, and it's, I suppose you become more invisible. You feel less attractive for a lot of ladies and that can just be challenging in its own right. I don't know how you found it as a guy. But do you think that's a, a whole psychological thing, Jenna? I mean, it, you know, when you're talking about not wanting to wear your, your strap top or, or your short shorts, I mean, do you, do you think that's, that's your own perception more than it is the perception of the folks who are, you know, who are, who are seeing you in your clothes and, you know, the hair stuff and all that Again, do you think that's more of a personal perception as opposed to, I don't give a damn, I'm just going to dress the way I want to and I look good and I feel good like this and I like my hair and I'm going to, whereas, you know, unless you do a survey of the people on the street, they might see you with two, you know, they, they see you with your, your children walking down in your short shorts and they go, whoa, what's she doing? But, or are they just going to go good honor? <laughs> definitely been a shift in the generation so when I was younger my mum and dad had this phrase that they would use all the time and it was like can you see that lady she's mutton dressed as lamb which meant it was somebody wearing younger clothes that they, they shouldn't have been wearing and they would often like not not in a terrible way or a gossipy way they'd just say oh, do you think they should be wearing that at this age yeah. 
And when I was younger, even like, but why? Why can't they wear it? Why can't they do it? And I think this generation, we are quite free to do what we want. If I make it to 70 and I have my short shorts on, which I absolutely will because I do like my little shorts, then why not? And I think now we are a lot more accepting. But that doesn't mean it didn't go through my mind. So I certainly had the internal debate, probably on the back of being brought up in a family where when you reach a certain age, you get your hair cut short, you start to dress appropriately. And I definitely did have the battle of, should I? And I probably have moderated my dress slightly, but it doesn't mean when I go to the beach that I'm just wearing floaty tops. It means when I go to the beach, I I dress however I want, but maybe I have changed a little bit in a workplace setting. And maybe when I am going out and I'm in a hotel, I I, I just think about it that little bit more, but I agree. Good on anybody that wears whatever they want to. And I guess that is the problem when we talk about aging is there are these societal norms. And while you and I might be able to just go, I don't care. I'm going to just wear what I want to wear. I'm going to make my hair the way I want to make my hair. And if I want to put some product in it and get it up and spiked and whatever, and maybe throw some highlights in it, which I'm thinking maybe some fuchsia highlights are coming. My wife's not so keen on, she's not keen on that, but I'm, I'm thinking of doing it. I'm thinking it. I might try some of that wash in stuff first just to see what's going to happen because it's funny I was I was talking with someone and they were they were complaining it, well actually this is an interesting thing as well I wonder if if when we when we talk about how we dress and how we look I wonder if women are more conscious of this than men and I wonder if because as you know you and I often talk about things and you'll say well aren't you talking to the other guys the potaholics guys don't you talk about this stuff and I'll go no and, you know, don't you talk to your colleagues about these things? And it's like, no, <laughs> never. And and whereas, and, and I've actually witnessed some of this at work because I teach at Zide University. I teach women. And the things my students will pick up on or comment on are never the things that the guys will comment on. So I had this one this one day. Let me, uh, and this is a great story. I had a student say, sir, can I ask you a personal question? And it's like, that is never a good opening line with a student when they want to ask a person, you know, this, here's this wonderful Emirati woman. She was fully covered and she wants to ask me a personal question. It's like, and I, I looked at her and said, Hey, you can ask, I don't know if I'm going to answer, but you can ask. And she, and she, she's looking at me. And so I can see no facial features, but you know, her voice is very, very inquisitive. And she just wants to know. And she, and she looks at me and she gets a little quieter and she says, what kind of hair product are you using? Because your hair is so shiny. And she goes, what kind of, she wanted to know what kind of conditioner are you using? And I'm going, no guy is ever going to ask what your hair treatment is. But I thought that was very nice. And I said, well, actually this is the hair conditioner I'm using. I thought that was kind of cool. But, and so the point being, I wonder if women pay more attention to these things than men. I think that's changing, James. I think sadly, I do think it's sad that, men now are very much joined the bandwagon of appearance and aesthetics and we're all becoming more and more obsessed with the way that we look thanks to social media and also it's on an individual basis too so my mum's getting older and she doesn't care my dad is six years older than my mum and probably the vainest man I've ever known in my life so hold on I I Uh, met I met Mama Sue how how old is Mama Sue my mum is 63 okay and my uh, dad is coming up to 69, so he's going to be 70 next year. My dad, I didn't know for years and years and years, wore coloured contact lenses to make his eyes a bit blue, which he still denies. <laughs> and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, when you meet him. He still denies. He stands by that he's six foot. I don't think he's ever been six foot. He shaves his chest. I, I sent him eyebrow dye in the, in the mail for his birthday because I'm also convinced he's dyeing his eyebrows, which he denies. <laughs> And he's, he's just the vainest, vainest man in the world. And that's, that's you know, that's him. But yeah. for him, the process of getting older has been such a sad and stressful thing. And I know one day he will get to the point where he just doesn't want to take that ride anymore. Yeah. And he will want to step off the train. Whereas for someone like my mum, she always says, if, there, if there's a head still left, keep me going. I just want to sit here. Just put, put me in the room and just keep me going. And there's two people aging, both I think aging quite well. Both touch wood haven't had too many significant health problems. My mum has, but she just kind of gets on with it. Nothing yeah. that has meant she's got long durations of stay in hospital or that she can't live her life. And yet 
both of them have had such a different experience in the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, and that's, you know, clearly when we're talking about your, your parents, the biological and the psychological intertwining do it in very different ways. And, you know, maybe it's the, their experiences, maybe it's the way they grew up, maybe it's their friend groups. So many things come into play. Uh, it, it, it becomes really interesting. Well, it's about like the, the five stages of grief, isn't it? And yeah. I think my mum's got to that stage of acceptance, which is a good thing, and embracing the fact that she's getting older accepting that life is fragile, accepting that life is really all that we have in the world and not caring as much, not putting as much emphasis on worrying about how she looks, worrying about what people think of her. Whereas for my dad, I don't think he's really taken into account the fragility of life or puts as much value on life, really. Mm. For him, what is so important is how do people see him? Do people still think that he's a young individual? Does he still have his health intact? That's really important to him. Wouldn't cope if he had a chronic illness, for instance. And for him, life is just not worth living without looking good and feeling good. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I, I want to have my hair. <laughs> definitely not any of that. <laughs> James, did you go through a midlife crisis or is one brewing? Uh, no, I, I don't think I really went through a midlife crisis. And I don't I don't really think one's brewing either. I, I think, no, I, I mean... Your hair pink. I mean, I feel like one could be bubbling away in there somewhere. Well, I mean, for 15 years I had blonde hair and I used to dye it blonde. And it started off when I moved here, my hair was that dirty blonde color and that was natural. And then we went full blonde dyed for 15 years. And then when we stopped dyeing it because a friend of mine had cancer and, and she shaved her head, so we all shaved our heads, I ended up with this, this grayish hair that you know that actually doesn't look too it's it's actually the color that a lot of people try to dye their hair to get so i kind of lucked out and but i i don't think i really ever had that midlife crisis where it's like oh no and what's going on i i think more now maybe it settles in a bit more now i've got a a 23 year old and a 22 year old son sons so i've got these two boys that are are really you know adults and young men now and i think you kind of look at it and go man how where where did those that time go but i i have no desire to go out and buy a sports car or any of that stuff or or you know suddenly i oh i need to be doing all the stuff they're doing and no that's it's just you know hey you know what i'm just doing what i do and I, I, maybe, maybe my, my midlife crisis was doing that marathon a couple of years back just to say if I could do it. Uh, a very healthy midlife crisis to go through that, James. <laughs> so that, I think you're a content individual. I think the midlife crises are often born from somebody that look at their life and they think, I, I'm not, I'm not the millionaire I'm imagined. Yeah. I'm not as successful as I imagined. I, I, you know, my life isn't what I expected. I've created more of, especially a mediocre life. I think when you're children and you're doing quite well in school, you're really projected to, you're going to do so well, you're going to take over, you know, you're going to be a high flyer. And then when you actually reach the steadiness of a job, being a parent, doing okay, doing well in your career, but not necessarily being this high flyer or taking over the world as maybe teachers or parents had encouraged you. I think sometimes that can be, a precipitant for a midlife crisis for people thinking I want more from life. I need something else. This doesn't satisfy me enough. And they have to go through that process to step back and think actually I had it quite good in the first instance. Yeah. I think people do forget. And I think we spend a lot of time sort of judging ourselves based on others and what we see. And you never, you never see behind the door of other people's lives. So, you know, I might look at, at you and, and your husband and say, wow, you've got it all. You're living, you know, where you live and this. And, but I, I mean, I, I only, you only see what you get shown. Right. And so I don't know the rest of it. And it's, it, I think that's the, the big piece of it is we, it, that, that's that whole saying, right? The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence until you get there and then you realize, oh, there's weeds here. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a, you know, what is, what's the cost of what other people have? And I think that one of my favorite interactions with someone in that capacity was, was, was with Thomas Lundgren of The One. So, you know, The One, The One Stores. And, and have you ever met... Have have you ever met Thomas, the owner of the one? Yeah. Crazy, crazy as as a fox. This guy. I mean, he is he's phenomenal. If you want to be around someone who 
is is going to inspire you and get you thinking, but also challenge you at the same time. Thomas is that guy because he's he's more than willing to throw convention into the wind and say, let's do it a, a different way. So I was at Thomas's birthday, and maybe it was his 50th, and we're walking around his house, and it was a beautiful place, and they'd set it all up, his wife and his kids, beautiful. And, and I'm standing in the kitchen, and I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe I'm getting a snack or something. And... And I, and I look at him and, and I'm talking to him and, said, and, I, and I say to him, I said, Thomas, I want your life. And he looks at me and he says, you don't want my life. You want my money. And, and he's looking at me and he's going, I want your life. I want what you've got. And he says, yeah, I've got lots of money and I've got all this stuff. And he, he comes closer and he says, I, I've, had, I've had triple bypass surgery. He says, I'm not even 50. That is part of the cost of what I've got here. Look at what you've got. You're doing okay. And I thought, you know what? That's that whole thing. You don't know all of the backstory of all all these things. And be happy with what you got. Make what you've got work. And and I think for me, that's sort of where... I mean, it's a struggle because I often get people trying to... And I, the, my current struggle, Jenna, is not letting people dictate to me what I need to be. Yes, you've told them you're going to give them the finger. Pick a finger. Yeah, that's it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going with that this year. I'm going to actually get a shirt made. Pick a finger. <laughs> but James I think this is such a fundamental part of what is wrong with our society is that we look at what people have we look at how they look and we don't look at are they happy or yeah. what you know have they got the health which are really health and happiness are the most important and I often say I sound like a bit of a hippie when I'm saying things, these things but it's so so true and every year my new year's resolution is to become a hippie because you know what they tend to be happy, and because of that and a slower pace of life, they tend to be quite healthy as well. Yeah. They have it made. But we're all obsessed with social media. And look at the people that are in the public eye. How many mental health problems do you hear of people in the public eye that oh, end up going to rehabilitation because they're trying to keep this persona going that everything is great, they've got it all, they've got the looks, and yeah. it's it's unsustainable. It's not it's not right. Life has highs and lows. And like you say about your friend, he had the money, he had the success, but he didn't have his health, and therefore yeah. his happiness probably took a bit of a a bit of a I don't know a poke at times, didn't it? I'm sure. And I think, again, this also goes goes back to our issue with aging. How many times do we see celebrities as they're getting older trying desperately to hang on to the beauty of their youth? without accepting that they're getting older and that things change. And it's absolutely fine to try and dabble in cosmetic products here and there. But sometimes you can almost see from their faces and the things that they've done to themselves, the desperation to try and maintain the image that they had a while ago. And I just think it's sad. It's true. You never know somebody's beef. You never know. And I wish we just didn't put as much of an emphasis on the facade that we give to people. So what image are we portraying both from our looks, but also from the lives that we're living? And social media is definitely one of the worst, worst, worst candidates <laughs> for allowing people to project how they look. I got one of those selfie things the other day. It wasn't for me, but I have used it once. Um, I, I bought it for another project I'm working on to take photographs. And I tell you what, you look so much better when you put on that magic <laughs> ring of light. Your skin looks better. Everything looks better. And, and, and how many people are now using these to take their photographs? Yeah. It's an unreal portrayal of how they look or et cetera, et cetera. That's my rant of the day. So James, you do whatever the hell you want. You want to dye your hair pink. You dye your hair pink. Live your life how you want to, because if yeah. you don't, you're not going to be happy. Well, that's it, you know. And I, and I think so. This is this is my beef, right? So many people don't they they they're trying to mold us or provoke us to go in a direction that they can deal with, that they understand, that makes sense to them, that's their path. And why do I have to go down your path? <laughs> it's like I don't want to go down your path. That's that's not my long term goal. And hey. <laughs> stop telling me so it's it's uh it becomes interesting i once wrote i wrote just like a little piece i like i like to write and i wrote once wrote one about the curse of the creative and a lot of people a high percentage and i don't know the statistics of people that have got that creative tendency like you have to want to go off piece to want to write your own life and do things how you want to do them 
are often then outcasts because they're yeah. not considered the bulk of people. They're not considered the normal. They are different in the sense that they think differently. They think more creatively. And I think it's really sad that as a society, again, we don't embrace that more because these people are the ones that go on to create films. They go on to create songs. They, they create businesses that are different because they think outside the box. But as a tribe, as a, you know, we're a society that are meant to live in a tribe, we reject what is not normal. And so people might think, James, why the hell are you going down that path? That's not the path that we're supposed to go down. Yeah. Why, you, you know, you're mad, you're crazy, you're weird. And really, you just think differently to everybody else. And we should really be saying, thanks, James, for showing us how we can do things in a different way. Well, that's uh, that's a conversation I had with one of my colleagues. And my colleague said to me, well, didn't you do a PhD so you could do research? And I, I looked at this colleague and I said, no, I did a PhD to get a PhD. Yeah, but to do research. And it's like, no, just to get the document. You went through all those years of study, all of that effort, just to get the document. It's like, yep, that's it. And they're going, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I say, wear it well. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense to me. I've got the document and now I'm going to do what I want to do. And it's like, hmm, don't understand that, James. Well, don't worry. It's uh, it, it's a story of my life as well, James, and it's something I feel quite passionately about. About how I think it's wonderful to think differently, and you can do whatever you want. I remember being an F one, so a, a residence doctor, and being told I could not go to Australia this year. I had to wait twelve months to go the next year, and I said, "Well, I want to go this year." And they were like, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you've got to do, you've got to do it just this way. This is the prescribed formula for our doctors. So I went away to Australia, just thinking, am I going to be able to get a job when I get back? Is everything going to be okay? And then I had like a ton of offers when I got back because I'd done something that was interesting. Yeah. And I gained an experience that people going into the F2 hadn't gained. And yet, if I had listened to what they'd said, I'd never get a job. I'd be outcast as a doctor. And, and yeah, I just sort of stuck to my guns and decided to do it. And, you know, why not? It's my life. It's your life. I, I, I'm listening to all this and I'm going, you know what? This is, this is that whole psychological thing that we, we, we just need to keep working on. And, and age and bio, biology and all that stuff, it's important, but it's, it's what's going on up in that head. And just keep evolving and keep working with it and realize our limitations as we talk about with aging and away we go. I, I know where I want to go on our next podcast, Jenna. Well, what am I allowed to know? Yeah, I want to talk bones and I want to talk falling. Falling's such a good one. Really, we should get Andrew involved to talk or to have, or even just record him to give his insight on some of the medical devices that are available for falls. I think he would know. Okay, let's do it. How, how do we, how are we, okay, we'll figure that one out. We'll talk offline. We okay. might not because Andrew disappears here and there, but we, we can try. Yeah, I, but I think bones and falling. I think as we talk about aging, just talking about that whole muscular skeletal issue. And there's a, a great study. I'm going to look the lady up. And, and it was a while back I read about her in the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She did an interview and she's located in Nova Scotia, Canada. So, and I'm not sure if she's in Halifax or if she's in Dartmouth. I, I have no idea where in Nova Scotia she is, but she's one of these people who deals with aging, folks who are aging and falling and how things they can do to help mitigate falling and she, you know, there was, I remember the interview so well because there was this one lady talking about, you know, she was only in her maybe early sixties climbing up a stepladder and she fell and she had so, she couldn't get up. And from that moment on, this lady then went into the whole activity of practicing getting up, which I think is what you told me your grandmother does. Yeah, she, she fell once and she was stuck on the floor for a few hours so after it happened, she kept putting herself on the floor and practicing getting up, which I thought was yeah. wonderful. So I, I think that whole cycle of things and what falling and, and so the other thing about this lady from Nova Scotia who deals with falling that was really good is she said when her patients come in to see her for the first time, she can pretty much with a 95% accuracy predict if they will be falling within the next year. 
And she she says just by the way they walk, by the way they hold themselves, and just, you know the shuffling. And as soon as someone walks in who shuffles, they're a goner because there's an uneven surface, a wet surface. They're they are going to fall. And the the challenge she said is a lot of times people who fall don't want to admit or tell people that they've fallen because that could open up the door for other remedies being put in place and losing some of their autonomy and that is as you as we get right back to the very beginning of our conversation that autonomy is huge with people they don't want to lose it all this such a big topical thing to discuss because if i was to go home to, today and do an a e shift i would at least see a handful of patients that have had falls the amount of investigations and tests that you have to do for these patients are huge because you need to find it could be from such a plethora of things you have to you have to find out is there anything medical going on then you have to have physio and um, occupational therapy come in to assess them to how safe are they to live in their home um, and and then the chances are there's they're probably going to refall because there is a tendency for the once they've started falling to refall yeah. and if they break a bone and especially if they break their hip bone the mortality rate within a year is normally around 50 percent wow. so it's a huge, huge thing and during recovery, they get nutritionally defected, their bones um, become weaker, their muscles become weaker whilst they're in a hospital bed. And for these patients who are elderly and they're already a little bit borderline as to how long can they keep going for independently, it, it can really be quite detrimental for the, the projection of their future and the quality of life. So yeah, it's a really, really good topic to discuss about, James. There we go. Part two of our aging podcast is going to be bones and falling there we go jenna this is awesome look at that we have a plan disappointed if i turn up next week and your hair is not pink i i i i don't know it might just be this color we'll see (laughs) either way i'll be looking forward to it I'll, the, have, I'll have my technology in order because I can't feel my right arm from holding it. It's <laughs> <laughs> the plug socket behind me. <laughs> oh, man. You're, you are a trooper. Dr. Jenna Burton has been here. This is Podaholics. It's Doc Talk. If you want to get in touch with us, Podaholics with a K at gmail.com. Leave us a comment. Rate us. We know you're listening on a variety of platforms. Please do that. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, we'll be back really, really soon. You want to find out more about what we do on Potaholics? www.potaholics.com. That's how you do it. Talk to you again real soon. You've been listening to Doc Talk with Dr. Jenna Burton. <laughs>